All right, how are we? You guys ready? All right, good. We're going to do something again, something kind of fun. I want you to think back to childhood. Think back. Again, we did this last week. I want you to think back to your childhood, and I want you to think back to your childhood icons, all right? Think back to that person. Think back to that group that you had the poster on your wall. Think back to how you wanted to be just like them when you grew up. I see my sister in here. I don't know if she remembers having new kids on the block sheets. Yeah, anybody remember new kids on the block? All right. So I'm going to tell you a few of my childhood icons. My first childhood icon was a guy, baseball player by the name of Ken Griffey Jr. Yeah, a few of you remember Ken Griffey Jr. Now, Ken Griffey Jr. was just this iconic baseball player. And growing up in, you know, I was born in early 80s. And so I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. And I remember me and my neighbor, we would go in his front yard and we would practice having a home run derby to see who could hit the most home runs. And the goal was to try and have as good of a swing and mimic Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing as well as there was that swagger walk, you know, after you hit the home run. Yeah, you got to have the swagger with it. And then I also remember Ken Griffey Jr., he came out with this Super Nintendo uh, baseball game. It was Ken Griffey Jr. presents Major League Baseball. Now, if you're a gamer, you know the game really sucked. It, it, was, it, it was horrible compared to RBI baseball. That was like the, the standard, you know. But, but it was so cool because it was Ken Griffey Jr. And me and my neighbor, I remember the only fight that we had growing up was he wanted to borrow my Ken Griffey Jr. baseball game. And I was like, no way, man. You can borrow anything else. But what if you break my Ken Griffey Jr. Super Nintendo baseball game? No way. There's no way I'm going to let you borrow this. So... Ken Griffey Jr., my first childhood icon. Now, again, I I mentioned growing up in the late 80s, early 90s. And so if you were a child in that day, there was two TV shows you used to watch, all right? The first one was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Will Smith. I had that hat. I know. That is. and, and, And how many of you grew up watching that show and you used to practice the Carlton dance in front of your window? You know, We don't record uh, video, so nobody can ever say I actually did that on the pulpit. But how about Fresh Prince? I mean, everybody wanted to be Will Smith. And, and the last childhood icon I remember was Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. Now, I don't remember much about Zach Morris. All I remember is that cell phone, right? That was like, that was the original. That, you know, and it was like a brick. He had to use like two hands to carry it, you know? And I, I remember, man, Zach is so, I mean, I don't know anything about Zach. I just remember that cell phone. So who, who was it that you wanted to be like when you grew up? Who was it that you idolized? You know, talking with kids. Some of the kids are like, you know, it's John Cena. Or some of the kids is Bieber. Bieber fever. You see them growing their hair out to look like Justin Bieber. Some of you, if you're a little bit older than me, Maybe you grew up and you idolized the Brady Bunch. Maybe it was Peter or Bobby Brady. Or, or if you're even a little bit older than that, maybe it was Fonz. Hey, yeah, yeah, that was not too bad. Now, what's interesting is people idolized Fonzie, but if you actually knew his name, Henry Winkler, you want to be like Henry Winkler? I mean, that just doesn't seem like it connects with the Fonz, if you know what I mean. 
But within the last hundred years, we've, we've seen the advent of radio. We've seen the advent of, of television. We've seen the advent of the World Wide Web, the Internet. And what has happened is so many of us have now become enamored with these cultural icons. Maybe it doesn't matter if they're athletes or they're musicians or they're actors or actresses. actresses. Most of us can identify, yeah, man, I remember as a child, I wanted to grow up and be like this guy that I watched on TV. And what happens is this carries on even into adulthood. Now, I know you adults, oh, we don't idolize men. How many of you have sat at home and you watched The Deadliest Catch and thought, man, I could do that? Or, or maybe you watch, uh, you, you watch uh, Man vs. Wild or Alaska, The Last Frontier. And us men are like, man, that would be awesome. Wouldn't that be sweet to just live off the land? And you women, we're not going to get into the shows that you watch. I, 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 I'm not going to go there. But, but what's happened is, is, is in our lives, we began to focus on what this life consists of. Or we focus on what we want this life to consist of. We, we focus on somebody else's life and say, man, look at their life. It seems so great. I wish, I wish my life would be just like theirs. But the issue is we can dream for these things to happen. But not many times are these actually going to happen in our life. You know, there's only one thing that any one of us can be assured of of this life. One thing that every one of us can count on. And that is this, that we are going to die. You, me, we are going to die. Every one of us. There's no escape from it. Now, it's not something that we like to think about a lot. We don't put a lot of thought into it unless perhaps we go to a funeral. Then we begin to think about eternity and, and life after death. But we are so focused on this life. We are so focused on, on what we want to achieve in this life that we don't often think about death even though we probably should. There's an American poet by the name of Emily Dickinson. I know some of you are like, wow, pastor reads poetry? Uh, no, I just read this one. So Emily Dickinson, she was kind of a weird lady, lived in the 1800s, and she wrote a poem in the late 1800s that really identified the transition from people thinking about death and what comes after death to people really focusing specifically on this life. And this is what her poem says. It says, those dying then, they knew where they went. They went to God's right hand. We'll stop right there. She's saying, those dying then, she's saying, there was a day and an age when people, years ago, when they died, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They knew what was going to happen. And she continues and says, that hand is amputated now, and God cannot be found. The abdication of belief, which means the resignation or the lack of belief today, makes behavior small. It is better, better an ignis fatus, which means it's better to believe in something even misleading than to have no alum at all. And what she's saying is she was saying there was a day and age when people thought about death, where they thought about what happens after death, and they were prepared for that. But now it seems that God's right hand has been cut off because people don't think about God. They don't think about what comes after death. And, and now she's saying the abdication of belief, the lack of belief, has caused people's behavior to be small. She said, man, it'd be better for us to believe something that is even fake than to believe nothing at all. See, in our society, we no longer think about the awesome truths that we find in mortality. 
Instead, we busy ourselves with thinking about things of this world. And, and instead of dreaming about eternity and, and, and what God has prepared for us, we dream about this world and what this world could become. So today, we start a new sermon series called Life After Death, a look into what comes next. The goal over the next five weeks is to really begin a, a conversation about what comes after we die. What comes next? We're going to look at heaven and hell. It's interesting, thing, it's interesting this past week I did a little research. And in America, it's interesting that 74% of Americans believe in heaven. And only 40% of Americans believe in hell. Now, specifically what they believe by that is all such a wide spectrum. Some people believe you know, heaven is full of unicorns and all sorts of wonderful things like that. And so, so the belief is all over the place. And so one of the things we want to do is we want to clear up some common misconceptions that people have about heaven and hell. And, and finally, what we want to do is we want to look and say, if, if, if there is life after death, if this life isn't all there is, that shouldn't, then shouldn't that affect the way that we live? Shouldn't that affect the way that we live if we know this life is not the end. So today what I want to do is I want to have us understand that eternity is a reality. Eternity is a reality. It's not a reality that we should fear. It's not a reality that we should ignore. But it's a reality that we can have peace, that we can have confidence about. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's an usher in the back. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got an usher. We'd love to be able to come bring one of those up to you. Uh, as well as if you are a fan of Craig Groeschel, you could open the Bible app on your smartphone. There you go. Thank you, Craig Groeschel. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Make sure you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because 1 Corinthians really deals with sexual immorality, and that'll really give you a screwed up view of heaven. So make sure you are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And while you are turning there, I want to give a little bit of background as to the books of First and Second Corinthians, uh, so we understand the context of where we're in. Uh, the book, the books of Corinthians, were written by the apostle Paul. Now, when we first find Paul in Scripture, Paul was not a Christian. Actually, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. Paul was involved in going around and having people who proclaimed to be a Christian, he'd have them arrested and thrown into jail, and then he was involved with having them be murdered. So this is the Paul that we first find in the Bible. But eventually God comes and God reveals himself to Paul, and Paul becomes a Christian. And after some time, Paul becomes a pastor. In fact, Paul becomes the greatest missionary that possibly ever lived. Paul became a church planner. And one of the churches that Paul planted was in a church in Corinth, in the city of Corinth. And when, when Paul left that church after he planted it, the people had a lot of questions. They had all sorts of questions about faith, about God, about these things. And so they would write Paul these questions. And First and Second Corinthians is really Paul answering those questions. Now, one of the questions that scholars believe that the people in Corinth had was they had questions about death and what comes after death. I mean, they had people dying. They had grandparents and parents and, and, and siblings and, and friends. They had people dying. And so they had questions about what comes after death. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is really beginning to answer those questions about what comes after death. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians. Again, 1 Corinthians, you don't want to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. 
And uh, you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen. And this is what it says. It says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home with the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that is God's words for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we're thankful for the opportunity to gather here today. And Lord, to open up your word. God, I pray that we would understand that this isn't just uh, the, the, the hour to come and hear pastor give his opinion. But God, this is an opportunity for your word to speak to us. God, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would speak to us from your word very directly. God, I pray that you would give us understanding as to this idea of, of eternity that it is a reality. God, I pray for your spirit to rest on every one of us, that you would put the distractions out of our way and just let us lean in to what it is you want to teach us today. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So when Paul started out this passage, he started out and he said this. He said, for we know. He says, for we know. These are three little words that you should probably underline in your Bible or Reach across your neighbor's Bible and highlight them, circle them for them, because this is important. Paul is saying that what he's about to write about, what, he, what he's about to say, what he's about to say about what comes after death, he's saying, this isn't just a hope. This isn't like crossing your fingers and hoping these things are true. This isn't a dream. He's saying, for we know. There is a confidence in these things that we can know these things are sure. We're going to come back to the idea of confidence at the end. But he starts out by saying, we can have confidence. And the next thing he says that, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. Did you hear what he just called you? Did you hear what he just called you? He called you a tent. He called you a tent. Look at your neighbor and say, you're a tent. Try that. Anybody, anybody in here like camping? Anybody like camping? Well, I've got, I've got a great little story about the first time I took my wife camping. Now, there was one Christmas that we decided to go in and buy one of these big tents, you know, from Costco. And so we got this tent at Christmas, and I was so excited. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to go and use this tent. And, and we had two kids at the time, and Samantha was pregnant with the third. That's a whole other issue on camping when you're pregnant. We'll get into that later, too. Uh, and, so, and so it was approaching, uh, it was end of May. We were approaching Memorial Day. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we, we should go camping, you know. And my wife, you know, she's a little ignorant. And so she's like, sure, let's go camping, you know. And so I got off work. And, and there's a couple things about camping in May, okay. May, when you go up to the mountains, 
it's still a little bit cold up in May. And it just so happened that this weekend was one of those freezing temperature weekends. And my wife didn't realize this. I said she was a little ignorant to what was going on. And so, and so I got her to go up camping. And, uh, and, and, and again, she's pregnant. Now, men, let me just say this. If your wife is pregnant, a hotel is a great option. A tent is not a great option when your wife is pregnant. Let me just, that's just like free uh, advice to you from me, from experience. And so, so here we go. We, we, we load up the van, we head up to, to, to the mountains, and this is when things start to get bad. Now, tents are normally pretty good. Tents, you know, I'm thankful for them. They're, they're pretty cool. But a tent without tent stakes is not so cool. Because what happens is when you put the tent up and you forget your tent stakes at home, the tent just wants to collapse in on you all weekend long. And so here we are. We've got two kids. My wife's pregnant with the third, and it's freezing temperature, and the tent is trying to collapse in on us all night long. And so my wife, in the middle of the night, she just got up, went in the car, slept, turned the car on, and slept in the car for the rest of the night. You know, there's just some things about camping and tents. But you know what I learned about tents? Tents are temporary, right? Tents are temporary. I mean, nobody chooses to live in a tent for their entire life. You know, and, 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 and tents, tents, they just don't last. I mean, I mean, we think about this building that we're in right here. This building was built, uh, construction began on this building in 1919. It has been around for almost 100 years. It is a beautiful building. We're so thank- thankful for the opportunity to meet in this place. And this building is, is on the process of getting added to the National Historic Register of Historic Buildings. Do you know what you don't find on that register? There's no tents on the National Historic Register. There's no National Historic List of amazing tents that have been around for hundreds of years. I mean, when you're getting ready to drive across the country, you don't say, oh, I want to stop in this little city because there's a tent that's been here for 200 years. Tents are temporary. Tents do not last. And Paul said this. Paul said, we, you and I, he said, we are tents. And if we are tents, then doesn't that mean that our life is temporary? Life is temporary. Some of us, we're going to have 80 years. Some of us will have 50 years. Some of us 20. Some of us 10. Some of us don't even last one year. But life is is temporary. And Paul kind of continues on this idea, and he says in verse 2, he says, for in this tent we groan. And then in verse 4, Paul says, for while we are still in this tent, we are grown, being burdened. Now, how many of you have a grandma or grandpa? You ever heard grandma or grandpa sit down in a chair? And it's like, oh, you know, and you just, you, you heard this, you know, some of you know what I'm talking about. When you turn like 40 years old, you know exactly what Paul is talking about, about groaning, about being burdened. Now, I'm, I'm not quite 40 years old, but I'm beginning to understand this. My wife, a few months ago, she, she did something really weird. She bought a full-size mirror, okay? Now, that's great. You know, women appreciate that sort of thing. Now, when we had just the mirror in the bathroom and it was just a half mirror, it was great because I saw from here up. And man, that looked good, you know, that looked good, okay? But then she got this full-size mirror that showed from here up. And pretty soon I'm like, where'd that come from? Am I pregnant? Are we pregnant? 
You know, I'm like, what, 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 what is this? And so, and so I realized, you know, last year, it's been since I was in high school that I had a physical. So I called the doctor and I'm like, hey, you know what? I probably need to get a physical and just hear how I'm doing. So I come in. And he says, first thing we got to do is got to put you on the scale. And I'm like, oh, this is great, you know. And so I step on the scale, and it's one of those where you have to move the little dial to get it just right, you know. And I, I step on the scale and nothing. So he's pushing it over and pushing it over some more. And, and I'm like, let me take my shoes off. Let me take my coat off, you know. And, and, and I put on, and he's pushing it some more. And I, I was 35 pounds bigger than I remember from the last time I weighed myself. And I'm like, your scale's broken, dude. Something's wrong here. And, and so then he does some blood work on me, and he gets the report back, and he's reading the report, and he's like, oh, okay. Uh, uh, uh. I'm like, dude, you got to interpret that for me. You know, what does that mean? And he goes, well, Kevin, there's, there's three types of, of cholesterol. You know, you've got two types of cholesterol. They're, they're good. But this third type of cholesterol, you're three and a half times what we would expect for you. And I'm like... Dude, if you're going to tell me I can't eat a cheeseburger, I'm going to punch you in the nose right now. Because that's not going to happen. You know, just something happens as you get older, your body begins to break down. I mean, I remember as a kid, you could play outside all day. You could run. You could ride your bike till from sun up to sun down. And you, and you wouldn't feel a thing. And then you get older, and you get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and you pull a hamstring. And you're like, oh, man. You know? And it's like... Man, something happens. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying tents are temporary. Tents are temporary. Tents begin to break down. Some of you know exactly what this means. Some of you have this to look forward to. But this is what Paul is saying. He's saying our bodies, they break down. We are tents. And if tents are temporary, then so is our life. Our life is. It's temporary. We aren't guaranteed any amount of time on this earth. You and I, we are tense, and our lives are temporary. Look what Paul says next. Start again in verse 1. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly body, if indeed by putting it on we may, be found, may not be found naked. So what Paul says is first, he says, we are tents. But then he says, we have a building available to us by God. Made by the hands of God. Not made by human hands, but made by the eternal God himself. I mean, can you imagine what kind of building, what kind of home God would make? The hands of God. I mean, these are the hands that created the entire world. These are the hands that created the, the, the galaxy and everything in it. And it says he is preparing a home for us. I mean, we can't even begin to fathom what that is. Everything that we have experienced has been created by human hands. And no matter how great those human hands are, there's always going to be a fault. My wife and I, our first home that we owned was a great house. We loved it, little house. But one of the things we learned in this house is no matter how, how solid that building, that, that house seemed, if you left a sprinkler on in the front yard, undoubtedly you were going to get water in the boys' bedroom and in our family room. In fact, there was one year where I was going up to, to camp at Madison House, and I said, hey, Sam, why don't you come up with the kids and come join us? So I left early Monday morning, and Samantha left later Monday 
and, and, and the spigot was right by the van when she got ready to leave. And so she got in the car, and undoubtedly one of the kids turned the spigot on accidentally or purposely, whatever they did. And we left, and we're up in, uh, up in the mountains for uh, a couple days. And Samantha came home on Thursday night and came down into the basement to find eight inches of water throughout the entire basement. You know, it doesn't matter how, how great a house is. There's always things like this. Because we have human hands. But the eternal God, the all-knowing God, the all-powerful God, the, the, the God whose hands created the world and everything in it, he is preparing a home, an eternal home, for those of us who are Christians, for those, those of us who have surrendered our lives to follow him. And in two weeks, we are going to do our best to look at Scripture and try and get some sort of understanding of what heaven will be like. But honestly, it's going to be impossible for us to, to truly understand that, to get a, 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 a glimpse of what heaven is like. Paul wrote regarding heaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, No eye has seen nor ear has heard what no man conceive, conceive. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even imagine what that is. So in our text, speaking of an eternal home, he's saying we are tents, but God is preparing for us an eternal home that is made by the hands of God. And he says in verse 2 and 3 that we long to put on our heavenly dwelling, or we long to be clothed in that, in that heavenly home. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. He's saying, he's saying on this earth when we live in our tent, it's kind of like we're, we're, we're naked. We're not, we're, not, we're not permanently covered. It's kind of like we're, we're homeless. And he's saying we long for that eternal home. We long for eternity in heaven because that is a permanent dwelling. That is a dwelling that was made by the hands of God that will last forever. So Paul has taught us two things so far. He taught us, number one, that life is temporary. And number two, he's told us that God is preparing an eternal home for us. And look what he says next, verse 4. He says, for if we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Paul's an old man. He's feeling it today. And he says, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Again, he's drawing the connection between the temporary tent that we live in and the eternal home that God has prepared for us. And he says this, so that what, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Read that statement again. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Does that seem a little bit backwards to you? Does, does that seem a little bit weird? I mean, our tent, that's our mortal life, right? That's what's mortal. And, and normally we would think that what is mortal, our mortal life, is swallowed up by death, right? I mean, isn't that the way that no, most of the time we think? Most of the time we think that life is swallowed up and ended by death. I mean, death comes upon every one of us. And isn't that just the end? But Paul's saying something very different here. He's saying that our tent, our, our life, is swallowed up not by death, but by life. Our life is swallowed up by another life. He's teaching us that eternity is reality. Eternity is reality. This life is not the end. This life is, is not it. We aren't swallowed up by death, and that's the end. He says we are swallowed up by life. Eternity, life after death, that is our reality. 
He's saying there's something greater for every single one of us than any of us could ever imagine. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed how nothing in this world can ever permanently satisfy us? Have you ever noticed this? I mean, have you ever noticed, right now, I'm just angry at cell phone companies. They're just the dumbest people in the world. Because I have a perfectly good phone that does everything it needs to do. And, and, and it does everything I want it to do. But they, they keep coming out with new stinking phones. And I can't help but envy that new phone and want that new phone. That's a picture of how nothing on this, worth, on this earth will ever permanently satisfy us. This past week was my wife's birthday. One of the things that we did is, is I grilled some sirloin steak for, for her birthday. Oh, so good, you know. Now, if you're a vegetarian, think of grilled tofu. I don't know, whatever you guys do for vegetarians, you know. But, but, but think about that food. And it was so good. But guess what? I could do another one today. I really could do another. I mean, I, I would love to have another big juicy piece of meat today, Right? I mean, why is it that it doesn't fully satisfy us? Why is it that we long for more and more and more? You think about life. You think about all these things, money, power, influence, popularity, sex. You think about all these things. They never permanently satisfy us. They feel good for a moment. But then what do we want? More and more and more. Why is this? Why is this? Because eternity is the reality. Because we were created for something other than this world. Eternity is the reality. We were created for something other than this world. Life is being in the presence of God. And a home built by the eternal God. Knowing that he is making everything right. And speaking of eternity being the reality. Paul says in verse 5. He says. He who has prepared us for this very thing who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He's saying God has prepared us for this very thing. God has put it into our hearts. Why? I mean, why is it that we have a conversation about life after death? Why is that a relevant conversation in our culture? Why is it that you can talk to any friend about life after death and it is a relevant conversation, a conversation that we want to talk about? Because God has put it into our hearts. When God created us, he put eternity into our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this exact same thing. It says that God has put eternity into man's heart. So we naturally have an inclination to think about what comes after death because God created us with eternity inside of our heart. So third point for us this morning is eternity is reality. We've learned so far that life is temporary, that God is preparing an eternal home for us, that eternity is reality. And there's one more point to make this morning. Verses 6 through 8, Paul says this. Paul says, so we are always of good courage. When he says this, good courage, what he means is, is, is we have confidence. He's saying, we are always confident. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. Again, yes, we are very confident, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul is saying this. He's saying we can be confident of these things. 
We don't have to hope for these things. We can be confident that life is temporary. We can be confident that God is preparing an eternal home for us. We can be confident that eternity is the reality. Now, I don't know how your mind works, but my mind begins to look and say, Paul, Paul, why why can you have such confidence? Why do you have such confidence, Paul, that these things are real, that these things are true? Because, you know, I don't want to just have this kind of blind confidence. Paul, why? Why should I put that kind of confidence that, that, that God is really preparing an, eternity, an eternal home for me? Why should I have confidence that eternity is reality? Let me ask you this. Anybody remember what happened on February 2nd of this past year? You were probably at home sitting in front of a TV. You were probably watching a football game, the Super Bowl, between the Seattle Seahawks and the Denver Broncos. And let me just remind you of that score right here, the final scoreboard. This score tells a picture. It says that on this day, the Seattle Seahawks were the better team. The Broncos did not play a very good game. They did not play the way they normally do. Maybe that was because of the Seahawks' defense. I don't know. I'm just saying, you know, maybe. But this game was so exciting that I began, you know, it was, it was really a beatdown. I mean, really, the Seahawks just had such a convincing win. And I began to wonder, was this, the, was this the best Super Bowl win ever? Was this the greatest Super Bowl win ever? Did a little bit of research. There's a couple other games that, 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 that teams won bigger than this. Super Bowl 20, 1986. The Chicago Bears played against the New England Patriots. And the Chicago Bears beat the Patriots 46 to 10, a 36-point margin of victory. And the absolute worst beatdown in the Super Bowl came in Super Bowl 24, 1990. Joe Montana led the San Francisco 49ers over the Denver Broncos. I'm really not picking on the Broncos today. Forgive me. Over the Denver Broncos, 55 to 10. But you see, these, this scoreboard right here, these scoreboards, they, they are very clear. They tell a story that cannot be denied. We can look at this scoreboard and we can have confidence that the Seahawks were the better team on this day. We can confidently say that we can have assurance. Did you know that Christianity has a scoreboard as well? This is our scoreboard right here. It's the empty tomb. This is an empty tomb. See, God's own son, he chose, he chose to leave heaven and, and come to this earth to be one of us, to live in a body of flesh and bones just like us. He lived a perfect life on this earth. And then he was arrested and he was tried and he was sentenced to death. And he suffered and died on a cross. And they laid his body in a tomb much like this. And three days later... Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus rose back to life. This scoreboard says that we can have confidence, that we can put our faith in a man who was here, but is here no more. See, Jesus, Jesus didn't just teach about death. Jesus didn't just have philosophies about death. Jesus didn't just write a book about death. No, Jesus faced death. He didn't dodge it. He walked through it. And because he went through it, and because he rose again, those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are, who are Christians, we can have confidence 
Because our scoreboard says empty tomb. And our scoreboard, it trumps what Jesus says. It trumps what anybody else can say about death. Because while they talk about it, Jesus walked through it. Jesus conquered it. Jesus faced death and defeated it. This is why we can have confidence in these things. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He means this. He says, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear death. If we are Christians, Paul says we don't have anything to worry about. And why? Because the scoreboard says the tomb is empty. Follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus, when we die, we aren't swallowed up by death, but we are swallowed up by life. We step into something greater than any of us could ever imagine. This isn't something that we hope for. This isn't something that we, we cross our fingers and, and dream about it happening. These are things that we can be confident of. Now, every one of us in here today, we've got two options. You've got two options. Number one, either death will destroy you. Or number two, Jesus will destroy death for you. Either death will destroy you or Jesus will destroy death for you. The only difference, the only difference is what you do with Jesus. The only difference is what you will do with Jesus. Will you choose to surrender your life to Jesus and say, hey, I'm choosing to be a Christian today. I'm choosing to have that confidence to say, yes, I want to experience this eternal home that God is preparing for me. Or I'm choosing to face death on my own. Either death will destroy you, or Jesus will destroy death for you. Today, it's very simple. It's very simple. Our lives are temporary. Your life, my life, is temporary. But we know that, that, that the Scripture says that God is preparing an eternal home for every one of us. A home that we're going to do our best in a couple weeks to try and get a picture of. But it's going to be just a simple glimpse of, of, of the hugeness, of the, 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 the amazing things that God has in store for us. Eternity is a reality, and we need to have confidence of these things. So as we close today, I want to encourage you. If you don't have confidence of these things, if you do not know what would happen to you when you face death, can I encourage you today? We're going to have a couple, a couple songs that we have an opportunity to respond to God's word. Can I encourage you today to come forward to one of these front rows? Myself and a couple counselors would love to be able to talk with you about how you can have this kind of confidence, about how you can come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. On how you can know that when, when, when you come into this, when you face death, that eternity is your reality. That you would walk into this eternal home that God has been preparing especially for you. Would you pray with me? God, I am so thankful for the opportunity to have this conversation.
And God, I pray that you would, would help us to, 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 to talk through these conversations, to have these, answer these questions, to ask these questions, to say, God, what is it you have prepared for us today? God, eternity is the reality. And death is something that people fear. Death is something that people are afraid of. But God, we don't have to be afraid of it because you have said, you have said that we can have confidence in knowing what is to come. And God, I pray for every one of us in here today that if we don't have that confidence of what is to come, that today would be the day that they would settle that in their heart. Today would be the day that they say, I need to have a confidence of what is to come. God, I pray for anybody that is here today that if they are questioning what comes after death, that they would be bold enough to step forward during these next couple of songs. And to come to the front and say, I want to have this confidence. I want to know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. God, I pray that you would use this series to allow many people to become Christians. God, I pray that you would use this series to give us a glimpse of what is to come. That this life, this world is not the end. That there is eternity waiting for us. And I pray that every one of us would be prepared for that day. God, I pray that you would help us as we move into these next few minutes, Lord. We're going to have two or three songs to respond to your word today. God, I pray for those in here today who need to spend some time just humbled before you, crying out to you, surrendering their life to you, confessing their sin. God, I pray that they would use this time to, 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 to pray before you. And just to say, God, I need to connect with you. God, I pray for those who are burdened with life, who are experiencing the groans of life and, and, the, and the, the, the pain of this temporary life. God, I pray that you would wrap your arms around them today. I pray that you would give them a glimpse of what it is you have to come for them. That they would be encouraged, that they would know that they are not alone. That this is temporary. That there is something amazing waiting for them. And God, I pray that in response to who you are and what you have done, that we can just get lost in worship. That we can just praise you for who you are and what you have done. We can praise you that our scoreboard says empty tomb. We love you and we praise you and we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.